Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Late Friday, a Texas judge uh, ruled against uh, Obamacare, declaring it unconstitutional. And the response today has been swift and fierce among healthcare stocks, some of which are down uh, more than 8%. Joining us now, Max Neeson, biotech pharma and healthcare columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here in our 1130 studios. Max, thank you so much for being here. So as markets digest this, it seems like Centene, uh, Community Health, Tenet are some of the biggest losers. Why them in particular? So the the companies that are down the most are the ones you'd expect. You mentioned Centene, also uh, Molina Health, uh, two insurers that have the largest exposure both to the Affordable Care Act's individual exchanges and to the Medicaid expansion. On the hospital side, I think it's just the general sense, um, basically, that they might be facing uh, more, more uncomp- having to provide more uncompensated care and uh, just generally seeing the, the obvious cooling effect that millions of people potentially losing health coverage uh, would have on their their ability to to perform. Max, uh, based on your reporting and your analysis, is Obamacare dead or is this just going to be one step in a long legal march? I'd expect uh, the latter. Um, You know, the the Affordable Care Act has has survived more more cogent uh, legal threats than this one in the past. Uh, it's a pretty weak case and a pretty conservative judge, even though uh, the Fifth Circuit, which is the next place it would go, is a pretty conservative um, appellate court as far as they go. I still think they're likely to overturn it, and if not them, the Supreme Court, uh, just because you know this is really a, a pretty big overreach uh, by this judge and, and by the Republican attorneys general that brought the case in the first place. Although, is the uncertainty that this introduces enough to create a material risk, regardless of whether the judge's decision is overturned. Sure. I, I think, you know, the, the prospect of facing yet another year when it finally seemed like things were going to settle down, the repeal effort in Congress failed, uh, premiums were down, insurers were expanding. You know, here's another year of something with, uh, I'll be frank, you know, you still have enormous downside risk, which is the entire law being being overturned, um, you, potentially in a pretty disorderly fa- fashion if there's a, an injunction, if it's upheld. So, so that's definitely a big risk. I think that's why you're seeing the sell-off, even though... Um, I, you might consider an overreaction just because uh, the the outcome with the greatest likelihood is is that this ruling gets reversed in the end. Is this a philosophical battle or is there a viable alternative to what is currently described as Obamacare? Uh, there are plenty of, of viable alternatives. I don't know if we've seen one proposed uh, in full that, that would have the backing of, of both parties, but you could certainly, you know, there are plenty of ways to go about ensuring a broader class of people. The ACA certainly has its flaws, but but in terms of kind of a philosophical disagreement over kind of the legal aspects of this case, um, you know, it's whether the individual mandate is severable from the rest of the law. And I think both from a, a standpoint of congressional intent, uh, we know that they think it's severable because they literally last year uh, voted to repeal the mandate, but keep the rest of the law. That is clearly their intent. And also just from a logical, economic, and, and financial standpoint, insurers expanded 
knowing that the individual mandate was going away. They clearly see it as economically severable as well. So, you know, I, I think it's it's reasonable to expect to get it get overturned. Where's the political pressure right now in terms of either edifying Obamacare or replacing it with something that has a sort of perhaps more feasibility in the long term, especially from the financial point of view, especially if you don't have the mandated uh, coverage? So I, I think there it kind of falls into a few separate branches. There's not much in the way of political repeal to, to or political will to repeal and replace it, considering that even the GOP with a, a larger majority in the in the Senate or similar in the Senate and a majority in the House couldn't manage to do it. Now Democrats have the House, so it's kind of likely to be a little bit of a standpoint, a little bit of a, a stalemate. Uh, there's the potential push for for something like Medicare for all by Democrats. Um, that's going to be kind of the next battleground, I think, or uh, a push maybe for a bipartisan effort to, to stabilize the exchanges um, by introducing reinsurance, um, something other than mandate, conceivably reintroducing the mandate, although I'd, I'd expect that's a bit of a long shot. In analyzing all of this, have you found that premiums for these insurance policies that exist on these online exchanges have increased? You know, for the first time this year, they're actually, in the first time in years, they're, they're down in a number of states. There are still increases, and they're still unsustainably high, uh, particularly for the portion of the population that isn't eligible for subsidies. Um, and that's a product of a lot of things, uh, partially the mandate going away, partially the fact that, you know, Congress has been in the hands of the GOP, which has been outwardly, uh, explicitly hostile to law. And uh, the Trump administration has done a few things that have uh, caused premiums to rise, cutting marketing budgets, cutting outreach, and introducing um, or pushing for uh, the broader use of short-term plans uh, that aren't as comprehensive and might siphon healthy people away. So that's all had kind of an impact on on premiums. Could be reversed with with action, but uh, that just hasn't happened. Thank you very much. Max Neeson, as always, a pleasure to have you here. Our biotechnology, pharmaceutical, and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And you can follow Max on Twitter, as we all do, at Max Neeson, N-I-S-E-N. If you ask Amazon's Alexa, this is the uh, artificial intelligence natural language technology. If you ask it who helped to create Alexa, the name Alex Spinelli should turn up. He is the chief technology officer of Live Person. He is the former head of Amazon's Alexa, and he joins us here in studio. Alex, thank you very much. And I have to ask you, is the reason why it is called Alexa, does it have anything to do with your first name? Uh, it has. Thank you for having me. It has nothing to do with my first name. It was named before I, it was? I joined the team. Okay. Yes, yes. All right. Fair enough. I'd like to tell a different story there, but uh, okay. not, not my name. Tell the story about how you go from Alexa and Amazon to your current role of chief technology officer for live person and another artificial intelligence creation called Maven. Yes. So um, I met Rob Lacasio about eight years ago here in New York. And we had this wonderful, amazing conversation about conversations. So we built a business enabling brands to have conversations with people uh, online. And we hadn't talked for many years, and we reconnected almost a year to the day uh, while I was running the Alexa OS uh, at Amazon. And what really fascinated me was 
Um, I was helping build what I believe are natural language experiences, uh, ambient experiences, which I think are the next way people will talk to their, have conversations with their digital lives. Um, and I was just fascinated with the ability to go from working just for Amazon to deliver that to working for all of the brands that we use day in and day out. So live persons customers are banks, telcos, retail businesses, and the opportunity to actually go do that and make a real change in all of the services that we use is, is the primary reason I can join. So going from a, arguably the hottest product on, a, on the planet, very large company to a small company, but to have a bigger impact in the experience that I think we need. So when you say a conversation about conversations, what is it about a conversation that so many artificial intelligence programs have failed to get? What's sort of the secret sauce in replicating a human to human experience with a robot? Right, well, um, the hard part is the sort of core language understanding. And I think, I, I don't know if uh, previous AIs have failed, I think it's been an evolution and we're getting better and better and better. I think you know, we started with Siri very early, capturing people's imaginations. I think Alexa kind of went into the living room and across the home. And now when you see the ability, what, what we're doing at LivePerson is actually embedding that capability in any of the messaging tools that you use today. So um, all of the things that you use today, day in and day out, your WhatsApp, iMessage, Line in, in Japan, those are the places that we're integrating Maven so that brands can actually have conversations with people uh, where they live, where they talk to their wives, their uh, girlfriends, boyfriends, their families. Do you see a time when websites will be obsolete? So absolutely. So I, I actually joined to kill the website and the app. I think they're kind of failures. I think I look at my phone and I have 162 apps that need to be updated. If you look at the share of retail sales uh, that's online in the US, it's still under 14%. And in Europe, they don't predict it to be 14%. Forrester doesn't predict it to be 14% until 2022. So for, I think for most businesses, the web is somewhat of a failure. Uh, it's never really produced a return. Sure, I can uh, manage my account, I can pay bills, uh, but Amazon's been successful. So they, they own nearly half that retail sale online. But for most businesses, it's not working. The, the, well, if the flip side, and Alexa sort of has highlighted this, is when you start to have a robot that understands human language, and can also track your movements and can also video you, it becomes a security issue and a privacy issue that becomes very uh, front, front, front and foremost. So I just wonder from your perspective, does that privacy issue become more of a concern when all of a sudden this is a multi-sensory experience and device? So privacy is super important to us. It was super important to me uh, when I was at Amazon, it's super important to me as a consumer. So we take great pains to drive a lot of privacy uh, and security. We don't sell or market your data as a consumer. We don't mix and match enterprise and brand data. Um, but yes, I think industry-wide, this is something that we all need to actually you know, pay close attention to. Well, not selling the data is one thing, but what about police, for example, that know that the crime has been committed uh, and they can go and if, let's say it's, let's say it's a brand, right? They can go in and they could say, well, if someone might have talked to you. It might have stayed on their device, but have stayed on longer. Can you just give us the tapes? Yeah, and I think these are these are real concerns. I, I think they exist today and they existed before AI. You know, whenever you call your phone, your phone calls recorded, you get that message. Anything you do on the website, there's a lot of ability to track that. So I think this is just something we need to pay close attention to. I think consumers need to have a say and input. Uh, and, you know, we have to actually hold companies like ours too accountable for those kind of things. And again, we take this 
very seriously. We're consumers as well. Let's say someone is running a business, any kind of business. It could be a service business, a business that makes a product. If they are interested in adding this artificial intelligence, natural language capability, and they don't have a strategy currently for iMessage, for WhatsApp, for Amazon's Alexa, for live person, what are the characteristics of the people that they need to hire in order to tell them how to get there? Well, uh, as a as a business person supporter of what we're doing, I think they should come talk to to us, a live person for sure. But they don't even know what the questions. They don't even to know ask. the questions, right? So they definitely need to look to people who understand machine learning, who understand AI. AI is not a panacea; it's not a solution to anyone's problem. If people come and tell you, drop the AI in here, and it'll solve all your problems, that's wrong. So I think they need to start to hire people who understand. It's a tool. It's a tool that can be used for great things. It's a tool that can you can spend a lot of money and waste. So I think finding the right experts to help develop that strategy is really important because we do think you'll see the brands and businesses that invest in using technologies of where people live, conversations where people are 15 million texts every minute, 60 billion messages on WhatsApp and uh, Facebook Messenger every day. You have to go where the consumer is. So you need to find people who understand that shift. Which brands are most forward thinking when it comes to this shift? Um, well, we have some of the largest brands in the world, T-Mobile, Home Depot, Rakuten in Japan, MUFG. So there's, it's pretty much across the spectrum. Banks, telcos, uh, utilities are all investing in this. Um, I think that uh, Amazon certainly, you know, and you look to the sort of big ones are certainly kind of leading the charge in some of these ways. I think more and more businesses are starting to hire the kind of people we talked to before and are starting to explore. Um, I think the ones that you see um, take bigger experiments and, take, and really start to play and learn and iterate quickly are the ones that uh, I think will be successful. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, was, my pleasure. Thank it was you. a pleasure uh, speaking with you. And I know my nine-year-old son would be unbelievably excited to think that I spoke with someone who helped create Alexa. Uh, Alex Spinelli, Chief Technology Officer of Live Person in Seattle and New York, for joining us here in our 1130 studios today uh, in New York City. Joining us now is Brendan Ahern, Chief Investment Officer at Crane Shares in New York. Brendan, thank you so much for being with us. I'm really struck by the slew of disappointing data that has been coming out of China from retail sales on. And I'm wondering whether you have a view on whether perhaps China is suffering vastly more than markets are currently pricing in. Well, no, first of all, thank you for the opportunity, Lisa. Um, you know, China, China's been running a number of domestic policies aimed at transitioning from high growth fueled by debt to slower but higher quality growth. And it's really been the trade war in conjunction with these policies has created a little bit of a downdraft that's taking place. Uh, I mean, I think if you step back, China's GDP will continue to slow, just law of large numbers. But I think it's just the culmination of some of these domestic policies, as well as the effects of a trade war, have created pretty soft, uh, soft economic uh, numbers here of late. Do you believe that this will continue into 2019? And what effects will it have in the commodity markets? So 
yeah, great question, Pim. You know, um, what we see is we believe that that we're at a market bottom at or near equity uh, uh, Chinese markets at a bottom. We then believe we're at a, a policy bottom that we're seeing an effect by uh, policymakers in China to stimulate the economy. And what will happen over the course of Q4 as well as in Q1 will be an earnings bottom, so as well as an economic number bottom. So I, I think the stimulus is is making its way into the system. It just takes a little while to show up. Uh, what you might see, Pim, around the commodities that could be interesting is, is we're seeing a little bit more of some infrastructure projects have been approved, as well as potentially a curbing of some of the property. Property development has been curtailed, and we might see that come off as well, which, which I think could have a very big benefit for commodities. All right. So, Brendan, it sounds like you're pretty positive on China right now. Is that right? Well, I, I do think, um, you know, as an entry point, it looks very appealing from both a relative as well as a historical valuation basis. So how would you recommend that international investors uh, gain exposure to China? Well, I think at this stage you have uh, the Chinese A-share market is, is off. You have uh, Hong Kong markets off as well as U.S. listed names. And it's self-serving and highly biased. Obviously, Crane Shares has a family of China-focused ETFs. But I really like the prospect for investors with a three to five, three to five-year time horizon for a potential entry point here. Well, if you listen to members of the of the uh, Trump administration, I mean, for example, Peter Navarro saying that investors should just let the uh, China trade war play itself out. Do you agree? Stand on the sidelines until something becomes clear. Well, I think for a lot of investors, there's, you don't have necessarily that ability that, you know, your, your mandate is to stay invested. I, I, I think, you know, if, if you wait for the... Yeah, but you don't have to stay invested in China. Well, well, to some degree, I mean, China is um, almost uh, it's 465 of the 1,100-plus stocks in, in MSCI emerging markets. It's about a, just over 30% of the total exposure, so, so it's a big, big part of, of these benchmarks. So to, so to go to a meaningful underweight could create pretty dramatic tracking error. Uh, but, but I do think, in general, if, if you wait for the green light, you know, the all-clear sign, you've missed the move. And I think if we get some progress, as we're seeing on the trade, if we get some, some rays of sunlight as the clouds part, um, I think the markets can and will respond positively. I have to wonder, we're seeing an increase in defaults uh, in the corporate debt market in China, and there have been a number of distressed investors, including Oak Tree, that have mm -hmm. said that they actually see opportunity in China right now. Do you agree? I mean, do you think beyond just the public markets and sort of the easy access points that this is a time for firms to be moving more deeply into the, into the markets there? Yeah, I, I saw uh, last week a uh, great uh, Warburg Pincus announced that it was raising a, a billion-plus dollar fund to focus on distressed real estate. So, so in general, China China is becoming Darwinistic when it comes to uh, defaults. They're they're allowing the proverbial hand of the market to play a factor. What you know, China has had been tightening in 2016, 2017. Um, they've had to back burner a little bit of this tightening and deleveraging process because of because of the trade war, but, but I think in general for smaller players, uh, there's going to be a rise in defaults. If, if you're a very large player, 
that has the potential to um, be that first domino in creating a systematic risk, they're going, they're going to do things to try to prevent that from happening. But certainly, I think for bond investors, um, you really want to stay clear of some of these smaller players uh, simply because they don't have the backing. They, they don't have that systematic risk, and therefore, the, the policymakers are going to let them go. Uh, Brendan, just as an example, the Crane Shares uh, CSI China Internet Fund is trading at levels that we haven't seen since May of 2017. Go back even further, it was trading lower, and that's even before the 2016 U.S. election. What would prevent it from returning to those pre-election levels? Well, I, I think what we're seeing is any, any, you know, there's been a lot of pressure on, on managers. If you hold something with China in the name, uh, you're going to get a lot of questions. I mean, we could argue all day that Alibaba, one of our top holdings in K-Web, has no revenue exposure to the United States, and yet the stock is well off. Um, so I, I think this is a little bit of the effect of a trade war on professional investors. Um, in general, when you look at a lot of the revenue growth of the companies that we hold, they're very, very high, and yet we're at a, at a fairly meaningful valuation discount to our U.S. equivalents, uh, despite having a higher rate of revenue growth. So, so this is where you know, I think the proverbial baby in the bathwater is being right. thrown out. All right, we got to leave it there. Thanks very much. Brendan Ahern is the Chief Investment Officer for Crane Shares, speaking about equity investments in China. It is that time of year when we get a slew of Wall Street analyst predictions for the year to come. Joining us now with one of those, Matt Toms, Chief Investment Officer, focusing on the fixed income market for Voya Investment Management, overseeing more than $200 billion from Atlanta, Georgia. Matt, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Increasingly, we hear from analysts start becoming defensive. What does that mean in a fixed income markets? And do you think a defensive posture is the one to take? Um, it's, it's important to bifurcate. It's a good question. Important to bifurcate between credit sensitivity and interest rate sensitivity. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion over the last three years about the potential of rates going up. And so it's been right to be defensive in the interest rate risk that, that one has been taken. As you have seen, the interest rates uh, you obviously increase in the U.S. up to just below 3% on the 10-year. However, it is right to, to look to be a bit more defensive in credit-sensitive assets. So bank loans, high yield, um, or more volatile uh, components of the bond markets that have a higher correlation to equities. That's where that defensiveness has made sense the second half of 18 and is likely to make sense in, in early 19 as well. So where can investors hide? Um, well, uh, the big push has been in the floating rate, and one of our big beliefs is that you head into next year, the Fed is likely to slow. We'll get some more information in the middle of this week. Um, unlikely to really signal a pause yet. I'll come back to that. But where can you hide? It used to be floating rate instruments that would protect against that, that melt higher in rates. Uh, we think investment-grade oriented bond funds, or quote-unquote intermediate bond funds now, have the best risk-return balance. You have some duration to help you, you have some yield, and you have more modest forms um, of credit sensitivity. So we'd advise uh, more towards those higher quality funds and, and less towards high yield and bank loans at this time. 
I'm curious what you think about that triple B rated sector, the lowest rated investment grade uh, rank of debt. I mean, just think about Xerox, just downgraded, bonds fell out of bed. Does that present yeah. a risk to your, to your thesis? It, it is a meaningful market risk and a very important topic. And, and there's been a lot of uh, good work done at Bloomberg and, and beyond on detailing now that 50%, more than 50% of the investment grade corporate bond market is made up of triple Bs. Now, we think one of the important things to talk about is because there's more of them, does that necessarily change how they're going to act? And, and we think it's important to separate uh, between the triple Bs. So there's two types of companies that, that get lower ratings, good companies companies with strained balance sheets or strained companies with good balance sheets. And and lending to good companies with strained balance sheets is usually a good trend. And so companies like Citi or Verizon or AT&T or CVS, these are names that everyone knows. They're in the triple B category. They're some of the biggest issuers, not necessarily strained business models, but more aggressive financing. So those are companies, uh, are examples of companies that we think you can still invest in and, and, and have as a part of a strategy. There are some that have more velocity into the downside of their fundamentals business. That's where you'd be concerned. So we think, yes, it's important, but B, you can't lump them all together. There is still going to be ample opportunity within many of those triple Bs. Will the market make that distinction when liquidity flees the bond market? We think it will broadly. There is one area where it may not, though, and that's in the longest maturity forms of triple Bs, um, which is the least liquid but is also grown. So that 30-year component of the bond market where fewer retail investors are involved, it's much more insurance companies and pension funds. With this big stock of triple B debt, when those are downgraded, there's very little demand by high-yield buyers or others for 20 to 30-year data uh, double B debt once it's downgraded from triple B. That's the area where the market will have a tough time distinguishing, and that's where you're most likely to see the most severe price velocity. Shorter data triple Bs, we do think the market will differentiate. I'm wondering what you think uh, U.S. versus the rest of the world, in particular emerging markets, because there's been uh, actually a lack of consensus on developing markets next year, given the fact that the Federal Reserve continues to tighten. Um, our bias is still towards the U.S. Um, we think that you have a strong U.S. consumer that has been very diligent and, and very modest in its re-leveraging. Actually, debt to, debt to uh, GDP at the consumer level continues to, to be lower and now even just barely, barely sideways to up. So that contrasts uh, meaningfully versus the corporate segment that's been re-leveraging. So a U.S. bias uh, still holds. We think the downside on Main Street in the U.S. is still limited, even if you have valuation uh, headwinds on Wall Street. Now, EM has been a fantastic area to avoid over the last 18 months with the Fed in motion. Our belief that the Fed starts to step back and our belief that you have incrementally softer growth out of Europe does mean EM um, does, it starts to look a bit more attractive next year. Valuations will eventually pull money in as that natural growth rate of EM is higher than developed markets. That'll matter more next year. So it's a little early to go all in on EM, but certainly a brighter outlook than it has been for the last 18 months. What do you take away from the recent reports about economic health in China? On Friday, the Chinese government reported that trade slowed sharply in November. Imports of copper and iron ore declining from the same month last year. Weak growth in monthly retail sales and industrial production. 
What does that mean for that thesis? What a bevy of good news, right? Uh, yes, yeah, so it, so it's certainly a risk to the markets. Um, we think one thing that it, one thing that it does highlight is that uh, a tariff war is a lose lose game, and ultimately, um, the markets are looking for this uh, for this tariff spat or war to be concluded um, with ultimately lower tariffs. So we think. Um, both sides are hurting. U.S. Uh, consumer confidence is still resilient, but business confidence is taking a hit. Um, and we're looking for signs that that melts through to the consumer. But on the Chinese front, it's clear China growth is is softer. Um, we think what you'll see is fiscal policy, tax spending, tax cuts, getting dollars uh, and yuan into the in the hands of the of the consumers will be their next step, and infrastructure spending. So no longer on the housing front, but on infrastructure and tax. That should be enough to offset that downward trend and to stop Chinese growth from plummeting lower. That's the belief. There is more risk in the, you know, all else equal than there has been, but it still looks like a very manageable situation in China. It's interesting that you uh, continue to view the U.S. as a brighter spot than the rest of the world. And I have to wonder how that uh, sort of plays with the yield curve that we've seen flattening recently with the shorter dated ends uh, of the curve actually inverting. Are, are you concerned about this? When do you foresee a recession? Um, we think um, c- clearly you're, you're at, at best mid-cycle and very likely moving towards a late cycle right now. However, the flatness of the U.S. curve um, it doesn't cause a change in financial conditions in and of itself, right? It doesn't stop banks from lending. Much of that lending is now done through the, through the markets channel is where you've seen that triple B debt created and then the leveraged loan market where you've seen the below investment grade debt created. So the flattening of the yield curve doesn't um, cause a recession. It certainly is a sign that the bond market is saying, Fed, please pause. We, we, as I mentioned, we think they will pause. And if the Fed pauses and the balance sheet does begin to wind down, we would expect, and this is a, a contrarian view, we'd expect the yield curve to be able to slowly begin to steepen next year. Um, as the Fed looks to be more cautious, that lets the dollar come off of its highs, that lets EM rebound, and we're very likely to roll into the second half of 2019 having experienced something that looks like a mid-cycle slowdown. So that ability for the Fed to step back um, is, is a positive, and importantly, we have made the exit in the U.S. from zero all the way up to 2.5% on Fed funds rate. Um, other central banks have not been able to do that, and that is also a cushion should there be economic down, uh, downside. Not many central banks uh, globally have that cushion. Much appreciated. Matt Toms is the Chief Investment Officer, Fixed Income for Voya Investment Management, based in Atlanta, helping to manage more than $200 billion of customer assets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.